In a world where a man loves movies and loves lists and keeps a list of his 100 favorite movies for over 30 years, what if he made his wife watch those movies in order? And what if he made her talk about it on a podcast? Would she like them? Would she hate them? Can this marriage possibly survive this podcast? Find out what will happen in a world called Craig's List. It wasn't him, Carla. It was you. Remember that night at the Improv Olympic West? You came into the dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're throwing this orange tuxedo show. We're going for the price. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night? I could have dominated that cage match. So what happens? They get a shot at auditioning to be on Mad TV, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my partner, Carla. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have said, got your back, so I wouldn't have to throw the scene for the short-end money. You don't understand. I could have taught class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Carla. Nice job. <laughs> well, nice job. This is my life here. This is what I. <laughs> there were so many weird improv insider things that you just said that nobody's going to get at all. <laughs> Everybody knows the ins and outs of improv competitions. Improv cage matches are just like uh heavyweight boxing titles. That's okay. how important th- that's how important they are. Okay. And, and got your back is something you say to your teammates before starting a show. Although we say based on a cruise ship that we worked on, uh touch, touch your, your back. back. Mm-hmm. Touch your back, which is kind of a, a a parody of that. <laughs> the cruise the cruise director thought we were just saying touch your back, touch your back, touch your back. <laughs> Again, really funny to us, probably not funny to most people listening to this right now. Look, I don't know the first thing about uh being in a heavyweight uh or or otherwise uh weight class boxing match. Uh, I don't know what it's like to throw a boxing match. I do know what it's like to throw a improv cage match where you don't want to win the next week, so you right. you perform you perform as poorly as possible. That's not true. You always perform. <laughs> you just don't invite anyone, so they don't vote you through. Well, I don't know when the last time I did a cage match of any sort <laughs> is, but yeah, it is a pain in the ass if you do keep winning. Like we've had friends that have won like. Uh, a year in a row of doing an improv cage match and of like, I can't imagine having to show up at like midnight every week. Yeah. It's stressful and have people vote on your self worth and, uh, and to bring people every week to vote for you. Yeah. Uh, I like your suggestion. So glad we talked about improv. No, I like your suggestion that we make this entire episode about inside improv references. You're welcome. I think that's great. Hi, Craig's listeners. It's our, it's Craig's List, episode 72, and we're covering number 29 on Craig's List. Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. We promised we promised our listeners a Beetlejuice episode this week, Carla. What happened? We went to New York together, uh-huh. and we're so tired every night that we didn't watch it. <laughs> 
what happens we worked on the docks for a while in new york and mm-hmm. we're like we need a movie that covers uh the the union workers the longshoremen and the corruption that we saw there on, on the docks. so we decided to cover on the waterfront instead mm-hmm. yeah it seems strange to be apologizing for the podcast being what it normally is rather than <laughs> what we promised which is a carla's list episode featuring beetlejuice but we'll get to it next week or in two oh, weeks since we're doing the it next two weeks right now, right? The next episode will be a Carla's list on Beetlejuice. We we haven't had time to watch it. Sorry. And I literally went and looked for a used DVD of Beetlejuice yesterday because we don't own a copy. We could rent it online, but you actually want to own a copy if we're going to bother to pay yeah. to – like we're in two different cities, so one of us is going to have to rent it for like four bucks on iTunes or Amazon, uh, but you actually want to own a copy since you're paying for it. Yeah, I think that makes yeah. the most sense. I um, think that makes sense. Not to get too much into it, but actually, never mind. I won't say that till we watch it. <laughs> Why? What? I've told a few people that we were doing Beetlejuice, and <laughs> people who've seen it more recently than I have were like, oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> I actually was looking forward to see it. Like I haven't seen it in years. Uh, like just because it doesn't hold up, or are there problematic things I about it? I think there are problematic things about it that I often complain about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, anyways, we'll talk about it in a couple weeks. All right. So two weeks until full the full hypocrisy of Carla <laughs> exactly. is exposed. <laughs> I gotta really, I gotta really think through these things before I declare what we're gonna watch <laughs> on Carla's list. Like if I haven't seen it in fifteen or twenty years, probably need to rewatch it before I declare it on my list. Interesting. Although it's, uh, I don't know. It must have been more recent than that that I saw it. Okay. Anyways, back to you. Okay. Back to your movie. Okay. Well, we'll cover that hypocrisy. Um. <laughs> so. Today's movie. Oh, by the way, I didn't use the word hypocrisy. <laughs> <laughs> but w- now that I've started, I'm not going to stop. Like, <laughs> I think it's a it's a great way. It's a great way to uh, to phrase it. Uh, today's movie is the 1954 Best Picture winner. Uh, it uh, was nominated for 12 Oscars. It won eight of them. Uh, of the four that it lost, three of them were for supporting actor. They had three nominees for supporting actor for one movie. Wow. Uh, it uh, was written by Bud Schulberg and based on a series of articles written by Malcolm Johnson about corruption on the uh, the docks of New York. And it was directed by Ilya Kazan and it stars Eva Marie Saint, Carl Malden, Rod Steiger, Lee J. Cobb, and in one of the most famous performances in film history as Terry Malloy, Mr. Marlon Brando. Uh, on the AFI list, it's currently number 19, and it also has the number three movie quote of all time, I could have been a contender. Mm-hmm. Which right behind, uh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That's got to be number one, right? Yeah, and the Casablanca one. What's that? Well, do you go with Louis, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship? Or it's no. not play it again, Sam, because that's no. not an actual quote. It's the one where, oh, we'll always have Paris. Or we'll always have Paris? Do you think that's number two? Um, by the, uh, I want to look this up and see what the AFI quotes are. I want you to as well, because I'm very you want- curious. Uh-oh, the doggie is going crazy. You live with a German shepherd now. I do, she's adorable. Okay. Wow. Is it uh, is it Kevin from Home Alone? 
<laughs> Just Kevin? Kevin! Exclamation point. Is that uh, a Catherine O'Hara quote? Yeah, maybe it's I'll be back. Uh, I'll be back is this is wrong because I feel like they did this quotes thing a while ago. I'll be back from the Terminator is number 37 on the list. And I feel like, I feel like that's only become more iconic. Yeah. Um, this is interesting because there is a Casablanca quote in the top 10, but it's not the ones that we just did. Uh, It's, it's, uh, Rick says it to Ilsa. Oh God. Um, Here's looking at you, kid. Here's looking at here's looking at you, kid. Is it? It's number five on the quotes list. Um, <laughs> that could have been. I can't believe I just said that correctly. That's pretty great. Um, <laughs> I didn't even know if that was the right movie. You were totally right that, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn is number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't understand. It could have had class. It could have been contender. It could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am, is the longest quote. No, that it should just be, I could have been a contender. Yeah. Like, that's the quotable quote from that monologue. <laughs> I think so. But this is what's listed on the AFI list. That's number three. Um, give me, like, let me, help me guess for a second. Okay. Number 10. Number oh, wait, ten. No, no, no. For the number two, we could, we don't have time to go through all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do the whole top ten. Okay, okay. Fine. I love top ten lists. Uh, okay. Number number ten is on it from a movie we covered already. Taxi Driver. Oh yeah. Uh, you talking to me? Yeah. Number nine is a movie that maybe should be on Craigslist, but is not. Uh, but is a great movie called All About Eve. Oh yeah. Um, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. There you go. Uh, number eight is from a movie we haven't covered yet on Craigslist. By it's the way, spoke- I love All About Eve. That's probably in my top ten for real. That is a great movie. Maybe uh, maybe we should do it as a Carla's list, or I probably should rewatch it as a potential Craigslist contender. Hey, guys. This it should have been a contender. This is never going to end, is what we're telling you. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to find ways to stretch it out as much as possible. Uh, uh, okay. I never want to get to number one and end this thing. No, we got uh, it in this list. <laughs> uh, number eight. <laughs> number eight is spoken by Harrison Ford. Oh, um... Something about Chewbacca. <laughs> um, uh, but, but something fuzzball. Laugh it up, fuzzball. Yeah. No, it's just may the force be with you. Oh. Um, though Why I guess he that's, get to claim that one. <laughs> well, that's that's who's credited. I guess because he says it to Luke at the end of the movie. That's ridiculous. That that um, I do not associate may the force be with you with him at all. But maybe that's the first time that somebody in Star Wars says those exact words, may the oh. force be with you. Does Obi-Wan say it earlier? Maybe he doesn't. Okay. Number seven is for I have for a, a feeling mo- there's somebody out there who can let us know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's anybody who's that into Star Wars who's really calculated it. Or maybe there's not anybody who's really into Star Wars listening to this podcast, which is possible. Go ahead. Number that's seven. possible. Uh, number seven is spoken by the character Norma Desmond. Oh, yeah. Um, some, I'm ready. I'm ready for my close up. <laughs> All right, Mr. Mill. I'm ready for my close up. Yeah. Mr. Mill. It's Mr. DeMille, right? Mr. DeMille. Yeah. Mr. DeMille. Uh, number six is from a movie that's kind of obscure, honestly, called Sudden Impact. What? Do you know what Sudden Impact is? No. Uh, it's a Dirty Harry movie. Oh. 
So the quote is, yeah, it's uh, you filthy scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> the quote is, you filthy scumbag. <laughs> it's uh, go ahead, make my day. Oh yeah, go ahead, make my day. But that is, I know that from Back to the Future. <laughs> uh, number five is here's looking at you, kid from Casablanca. Number four is spoken by the character Dorothy Gale. Really. Is that from Tootsie? <laughs> no, no, you're thinking of Dorothy Michaels or Michael Dorsey. Oh, Dorothy... is this from Wizard of Oz? It sure is. Uh, there's no place like home. I would guess that, but it's actually Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This is, these people are stupid. Uh, who, who voted <laughs> for this? This doesn't make sense. Okay, so. Do you like how I like really went for it and called them all stupid? <laughs> uh,. I would think there's no place like home. I don't even see that on the list. Could you not have more than one quote from one movie? Yeah, you could because there's another uh, Gone with the Wind. Okay, so number two, the interesting thing about number two, it's also spoken by Marlon Brando. Oh, it's from The Godfather probably. Yeah. And he's probably saying <laughs> something about – uh. See, when I think of The Godfather, the one that I think of is when Al Pacino is saying to Fredo the thing. I knew it was you, Fredo. I knew it was you, Fredo. That's the one uh-huh. I think of. That's what, your quote. What would Martin – Martin who? Martin Brando? <laughs> he would say something like uh, – uh, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. You interrupted me. Hmm. What were you going to say? I was going to say, you, you're in charge of the business, son. <laughs> you think that's the number two movie quote of all time? <laughs> you're in charge of the business, son. No, that's that's actually, that makes sense. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. That makes make sense. Make him an offer he can't refuse. Okay. So uh, that this has been the AFI quotes list on Craigslist. Uh, thank you for no, no song for that. <laughs> <laughs> Dinerstein, come on! <laughs> oh God, poor. Uh, thank you for indulging us because I love top ten lists and I love making Carla guess what is on a top ten list. I got most of them right. Yes, you did. Uh, so, <laughs> so I could have been contender is the number three quote of all time, and I feel like this is a movie where more people know that quote. In in the present day, than know the movie or have seen the movie. Do you feel like that's accurate? Yes, because I knew the quote, but I had not seen the movie. And you didn't really know what the context of the quote was. Nope. Though you knew you knew he was talking about boxing, though, I right? Did. I knew he was talking about boxing. That's all I knew. Whenever you see one of those montages of classic movies at the Oscars, they will always play. I could have been a contender. Yeah, I actually, I think. I'm just putting myself back a couple weeks ago and what I would have thought, but I think that I thought that he was talking about boxing, but that he was talking about, well, he was, how he was never able to do what he wanted to do with boxing. Yes. I do have a Carlos quote to that effect of what you thought the plot of this oh, movie okay. was. So, yeah, so we, we do have that already. I'm eating an apple. Hey, that's cool. Whatever you need to do. Great. Uh, you're on a cleanse right now. You should be too. We gotta lose some weight. It's summertime. It's bikini weather time. That's right. Uh, I'm gonna pull out my bikini very soon. I'm very close to my bikini body. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I'm I'm visiting you in Portland in a couple of weeks. I'm gonna bring my speedo up, 
and uh, and we're gonna go. <laughs> So you had never seen On the Waterfront? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I probably saw it for the first time when I was in high school. And I feel like this has been on my list and maybe as high as in my top 10 at various times. It's now number 29 on Craigslist. We'll get into where it will wind up after this viewing later. But I, I know I've had it in my top 10 uh, at various times. And I think I definitely saw this movie, uh, when I, probably because I had seen a list, uh, not the AFI list, because they did that for the first time in like the, the late nineties, uh, but some sort of earlier definitive, you know, top 10 of all time list. And I had not been familiar with this movie. And I think I sought it out when I was around 16. And I think I was on a Brando kick at the time. So I think I watched, uh, Streetcar for the first time. I watched Godfather for the first time. I probably watched Last Tango in Paris for the first time. And in my mind, uh, when I saw this movie, that nobody was better than Brando. And this immediately was one of my favorite performances of all time. And I don't know if, uh, if it would hold up uh, of of this specific performance being one of my top five or top ten performances, but it's it's pretty great. He's pretty great in it. Yeah. What did you think of Brando? I thought he was great. And it's very different, really, than Stanley Kowalski. I mean, other than the fact that they are kind of working class guys, uh, Stanley is kind of gross and coarse, but he's also smart. Uh, he's perceptive. Uh, and he, he kind of picks up on things and Terry is a former boxer who's maybe a little punch drunk, uh, and is a little slower, slower on the uptake. He's being taken advantage of, uh, by these mobsters. His brother, Charlie, uh, is the accountant for this big time mobster, Johnny Friendly, who runs the wharf. And so the, he kind of dominates the union there, uh, in, uh, it, I don't know if the movie is specifically set in Hoboken, but it was shot at the Hoboken docks in, uh, in New Jersey. So the people who are, uh, friends of the mob get the good jobs, uh, on the dock. And then the people who aren't loyal to the mob have to kind of hustle for the scraps. And then the union workers get to basically sit, uh, sit around and have these cushy jobs, uh, all day where they don't really have to do anything. But there's a crime commission that's looking into Johnny Friendly and his boys. And so there's a real division among the dock workers of who's going to rat on them and who isn't. And so this movie is kind of an exploration of Marlon Brando's character gradually getting up the nerve. Uh, to rat and uh, betray the his uh, allegiance to these uh, gangsters. Yep, that's what I saw. <laughs> that checks that checks out on my end. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, uh, he he helps set up this guy named Joey Doyle, who is already ratted uh, on Johnny Friendly. He, he sends it, yeah, they, they race pigeons together. And so they have a, a pigeon coop and he sends, uh, Joey Doyle to the roof where he gets pushed off to his death. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry was not aware that they were going to do that. Uh, but, uh, Terry's, uh, or Joey's sister kind of comes to the picture played by Eva Marie Saint in her film debut. And then Terry and, uh, that was her film debut. 
she had done a lot of TV. Uh, this was the time where there was a big, uh, scene in, you know, the early days of television in New York, they would do a lot of live plays, uh, on TV. So she actually was very experienced on stage and doing TV, but she had not been in a feature film before this. Oh, wow. Her character, I believe was supposed to be 19. She was around 30 when she did this, but she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in her debut film. Wow. Uh, so, uh, Terry and Edie, uh, Eva Marie Saint's character kind of strike up a, a tentative, uh, but eventually passionate romance. Uh, what'd you think of her in this movie? Yeah, I thought she was really good. I think the acting is really good in this all around. Yeah, I agree. It was all very believable. It didn't feel sometimes with movies of that same era, things feel more melodramatic. Um, which is fun and it's a style. Yeah. This one felt more based in real, real life emotions, uh, including by her. Cause I've also seen, well, like for example, um, streetcar. Yes. We talked about how I felt like Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee were in two different movies sometimes. Yes. And this felt all very consistent to me. Not that it's fair to compare those two movies. They're completely different, but because they're Marlon Brando's in both, I guess that's why I was thinking that. No, I think it's fair because they're both Ilya Kazan. You know, they came out around the same time and they both kind of feature, you know, members of the actor's studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kazan uh, had founded the actor's studio in the, the late 40s. Uh, and he used a lot of the same actors. Carl Malden is in both movies. You know, mm-hmm. he played Mitch in Streetcar and he plays the priest here. Uh, I think Carl Malden is such like a naturalistic actor, especially mm-hmm. for the, uh, for the time. Like he's very believable. Uh, Rod Steiger was another method actor. He plays Charlie, the brother. Uh, Lee oh, J. Cobb. That's Rod Steiger. Got it. Rod, Rod Steiger, uh, who later won, uh, the Academy Award for In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. Also well known for Dr. Zhivago and, uh, The Pawnbroker. Um, and then Lee J. Cobb was the other actor to be nominated for supporting actor for this. Uh, and he plays Johnny Friendly. Uh, he's definitely a little more over the top. He's kind of a table pounder of an actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel yeah. like that's his main move is to pound a table. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, but I think he's very effective for what he has to do. Yeah. He's uh, like the high status character. So it's believable that he's like screaming at everybody all the time. Yeah. Very similar to his role in 12 Angry Men, where he was the, the, the last juror who's the holdout. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it is very different than a typical movie of, of the fifties. And you start seeing the, the method acting being influential and also shot on location for the most part at the actual docks. A lot of the extras are people who are dock workers. Uh, he cast a lot of people with great faces, you know, people who had been boxers or people who had been in the mob, uh, mixed in with real actors. There's, there's a lot of character actors who would become better known in very small or almost silent parts in this. And we'll, we'll talk about them a little later. Uh, but yeah, this was going to be done originally. Kazan and Arthur Miller had a script that they were pitching to Columbia that was about dock workers. And this is in the early fifties. And Harry Cohn, the, the head of Columbia, uh, wanted to make the villains communists. <laughs> 
Uh, because this was at the time of the House on American Activities Committee and Arthur Miller bowed out. He's like, I'm not going to make the villains communists right. uh, in this, probably for obvious reasons. So this is before Miller and Kazan had the fallout in their friendship uh, where uh, Kazan named names and Miller did not. Miller wrote The Crucible mm-hmm. and Kazan made this movie, many people think, to justify his ratting on his communist oh, friends. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, the oh. movie was... Oh! <laughs> no, that, but I th- that is very interesting to think that... <clears throat> yeah, to think that that had a personal... That was thematically important to him in his personal life. Yeah, so obviously he identifies with the the Terry character here who uh, becomes the hero and ends up going and, and testifying... Uh, and then is kind of estranged by the mobsters. They beat the shit out of him at the end of the movie, but then all the honest dock workers, uh, stand up for Terry and refuse to go in and work until he's allowed to, to work. I'm getting to the end of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, here. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a very kind of convincing and grounded world, uh, that Kazan creates here, I think. I think there are some melodramatic elements, though, that don't mesh with the acting style. Um, the score is written by Leonard Bernstein, and it's really beautiful, great music. But I listened to the Settling the Score episode for, that covered this movie. Our friend uh, Jonathan Dinerstein and his friend uh, Andy have this wonderful podcast that we've talked about before where they cover, again, an AFI list of the top 25 scores of all time. They're both composers and musical experts. And the detail I could not get out of my head after hearing it on their podcast was that Bernstein refused to do any spotting for this score and just wrote music and said, here's the music. Lay it in wherever you want. Really? So he was not watching scenes to specifically uh, write music for the emotional beats of. I mean, I, I imagine he read the script right. <laughs> at uh, at some point. But uh, I think there's times where the music does does kind of run counter to the images that you see, and maybe feels a little overwrought. Uh, for the moments that the actors are playing. I think it's absolutely great music, but I feel like it doesn't always fit well. Mm. I don't remember anything about the score. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember one thing about it. (laughs) I don't remember hearing it. I don't remember if it affected me. (laughs) I really don't. Do you want to try to hum one little tune from the score? I have no idea. (laughs) I wouldn't even be able to. Like, I'm sure it's sad. It's it's very emotional and grandiose. I mean, it's a full symphonic score. Uh, and we watched this probably nearly a month ago at this point. Yeah, it's been a while. We were – where were we? In another country. <laughs> <laughs> we were in Scotland where we watched this. That's so we watched, right. we watched it on a laptop with a disk drive. And I feel like we watched it in – no, you know what? We started it in L.A., didn't we? We started watching it in L.A. and then finished it in Scotland. I don't remember. I think that's correct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, let's go chronologically through the movie with a segment that we like to call Carla's Quotes. She's feeling her oats and Craig's taking notes. Whatever they are, it's Carla's Quotes. 
I did ask you as I was starting the movie what you thought the synopsis of the plot was. Mm -hmm. And this, this is what you said. A boxer who's trying to support his family, but he keeps getting beat up. Maybe he gets killed in a boxing match, but the wife has to fend for herself. <laughs> <laughs> or that could be the plot of a, of a Renee Zellweger movie. <laughs> Which I think you're thinking of Cinderella Man? Yeah, I think so. Did you see that? I don't think so. <laughs> but some somehow you know the plot of it. <laughs> well, isn't he like a boxer and he doesn't want to do it anymore, but he needs to make money to support the family and Yeah. I I don't think he gets killed. Uh I don't think so either. I don't know why I added that part to it. <laughs> um yeah, so you know, you you got that boxing is an element, uh but uh but I think uh not not that accurate of a prediction okay. overall. <laughs> uh, during the credits, you did say longest opening credits ever. <laughs> so you're, you're a little impatient right away. And then you said, is this a three-hour movie? Is this a 45-minute movie? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Why would I say that? <laughs> I don't know why you said that. Is this a three-hour movie? Is this a 45-minute movie? Okay. <laughs> And it's about an hour 45. It's a good, reasonable length. It is reasonable, yes. I think. Um, right after that first scene where they pushed Joey Doyle off the roof, Carla said, so it's about the mob. <laughs> and uh, everybody's D&D &D in this movie. Do you remember what that stands for? Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> they are huge D&D &D fans in this <laughs> Terry is a DM, uh, who, who's trying Dungeon to, uh, he, <laughs> that's right, Carla. <laughs> and, uh, all of the dock workers are various elves and dwarves and mages. Uh, no, D and D is what the dock workers who don't want to get involved are. They're deaf and dumb. Mm. So that, that becomes a, a recurring thing. Uh, like later, Carl Malden said, after the dock workers get beat up, uh, for just having a meeting, Carl Malton's like, you still D and D? You still D and D? Um, <laughs> and so I think at one point I pointed out a supporting actor who was familiar, uh, from another movie that we'd seen. And Carla said, all these people look familiar. I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, uh, obviously we covered, uh, Carl Malden already, who was in Streetcar. We covered Lee J. Cobb, who was in 12 Angry Men. Uh, Martin Balsam is in this. He plays one of the crime commission investigators. And we saw him both as the foreman in 12 Angry Men and as Arbogast, the detective in Psycho. Oh. So he's the guy who falls backward down the stairs, yeah. uh, when, uh, Norman's mother comes to kill him. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Pat Hingle plays a bartender in this. Pat Hingle later was in another Kazan movie, uh, Splendor in the Grass, where he played Warren Beatty's dad. Oh, yeah. And uh, not in another Craigslist movie, but a very familiar actor, Fred Gwynn. Did you notice Fred Gwynn in this movie? I have no idea. I don't know any of these names. I'm not going to remember uh them either. Well, F Fred Gwynn is uh, is very distinctive because he's so tall and thin mm -hmm. uh, and has oh, a, a very... He's from. he's from... Uh, hold on. I'm scanning my brain for what that movie was with um, Charlton Heston. No? <laughs> 
Oh, you're thinking of Touch of Evil? Yeah. Uh, no, Fred Gwynn is Herman Munster. Oh, you set me up for that. <laughs> How did I set you I up? I thought you were naming people in this movie that I had seen in other movies that we had watched. No, I said this This guy is not from a Craigslist movie, but is a familiar oh, actor. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so so he's in, he was in two classic sitcoms, Car 54, Where Are You?, and The Munsters, where he played Herman Munster. Cool. Uh, and then uh, his last role before he died was very famous, too, where he played the judge in My Cousin Vinny. Oh. Uh, who could not understand Joe Pesci's uh, Bronx, Brooklyn accent. Okay. Um, there's a lot of good hard-boiled dialogue in this. Uh, I love Brando's line early on, you're not too funny today, fat man. <laughs> and I feel like that's a good insult to say to anybody who's annoying you regardless of what their weight is. Mm-hmm. You're, not too, you're not too funny today, fat man. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think there's some real like good, like tough-looking guys <laughs> Who are just kind of there to, to to flesh out uh the scenes as extras or as guys in bit parts, and then a lot again a lot of a lot of the longshoremen were actual longshoremen. Uh, this is something you said about Terry Malloy early on. His eyebrows are weird. Mm-hmm. That's Brando in this movie, and I guess because you know he's supposed to be a boxer and he's supposed to have like, uh, you know bruises and uh scars and everything so he's got kind of a kind of a fucked up eyebrow in this movie which is a little distracting in some of the uh the close-ups yeah it was just kind of like not great makeup (laughs) not makeup not nominated one of the one of the 12 nominations though they weren't they did not have a makeup category at the time but like i'm talking about i know but i'm saying the scars (laughs) On his face, kept moving around. It seemed like. Hmm. Yeah, I should track the IMDb uh, goof section for continuity errors. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's gonna be fun. <laughs> Can't wait for that. Uh, if you really want to see uh, people being pedantic uh, in life, always go to the goof section of any well-known movie, and there's people who have taken the time to list every continuity oh. error. In a movie, <laughs> uh, and, and to go out of their way to uh, to find it. Um, did you do you remember what the secret signal was? Uh, because like the guy who's like the head of the docks, who's like handing out the chips of whether people can work or not. Uh, guys are just like kind of like scratching their face or like grabbing their hat or like touching their nose or whatever. And it's so obvious. Uh, but all the guys who don't know the secret signal are like, come on, come on. I got to work. Like, give me a chip, you know, and yeah. all these other guys are just like, eh. I'm like, you think after a while they could pick up on the secret signal. I don't remember that. <laughs> Uh, Carl Malden as a pre, as the priest has another great line. I'm just a potato eater. Oh yeah. He was really good in this movie. I liked his character a lot. Yeah. He's kind of the moral conscious conscience of this. And yeah, even Marie Saint's character is supposedly like she's training to be a nun or she lives with nuns or, or something. And she's, yeah. she's very sheltered. And so. Not only she had not much exposure to men in general, she's being exposed to Brando's character who's like, you know, this real roughneck guy, uh, with, with no class, uh, because he could have had class and he doesn't, uh, <laughs> and who's very coarse, uh, with her. So it, it's kind of an interesting romance. 
I agree. Do you think uh, her performance or the character elevates beyond just being the girl? Or is she just kind of the girl? Hmm. It didn't bug me. I, yeah. I didn't think about it. So then probably it's, it, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> One of the most famous scenes in the movie is when he's first walking with her and she drops her glove and he picks up her glove and puts it on his hand. Did you notice that? No. Because she's got these very like delicate woman's, you know, lace gloves that she's wearing. And it, it didn't happen organically in the take, uh, in the movie, but it happened in rehearsal. Cause obviously Kazan is doing a lot of rehearsal, uh, with these method actors to prepare for the movie. And on one rehearsal, Ava Marie Saint accidentally dropped her glove. Brando picked it up, wouldn't let her have it back and put it on his hand, uh, which is a way to kind of like keep her around. Mm. So like she can't leave him until, uh, she gets her glove back. So it, it's one of those like nice bits of method, uh, accidents that ends up being kind of like a good justification. So Kazan liked it so much that he reblocked the scene to incorporate the glove. Oh, cool. So he, uh, he has pigeon coops. Uh, and he trains, he's a sensitive guy who has birds. Uh, and he has this whole monologue about it's a city full of hawks preying on pigeons. So it's not very subtle symbolism. No. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting, like all the different, uh, animal synonyms for somebody who, uh, who goes to the authorities. Pigeons, canaries, rats, uh, are all these different, uh, synonyms. And you hear them a lot. Uh, but he has this other thing of like pigeons are loyal and they mate for life. But it, it gets more and more dangerous, uh, to, uh, to potentially rat on Johnny Friendly because they kill another dock worker by dro- dropping a bunch of cases of Irish whiskey on him. Right. And then Carl Malden has this whole speech, uh, where they're f- throwing fruit at him and he, he gets beaned with like a bottle in the head, draws blood. Uh, I really like that scene as well. Um, <laughs> but I feel like everything was pretty much on location other than the famous uh, scene in the car between Rod Steiger and Brando, uh, which is clearly a set, uh, which is clearly a fake car. On the DVD that I have, there's an entire half-hour documentary on that scene alone, on the I Could Have Been a wow. Contender speech. And it's really interesting. Is it? Uh, are you sure? I, I well, I can I can I can, s- I can sum up the highlights for you, but it has a lot of people like Martin Landau and uh, uh, James Lipton talking about how influential that scene was in the history of uh, method acting and and everything. But uh, Steiger is just as good as Brando in that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just has the more kind of subtle, low key part. Uh, but Brando left for Steiger's close up. So they shot the wide, they shot Brando's close up, and then Brando was allowed to leave the set at 4 p.m. every day to go to therapy. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> so when it came, when it came time for Steiger's close up, he had, he had to read with like a stagehand <laughs> or whatever. Uh, so anytime you see a, a close up of Rod Steiger in that scene, Brando is not off camera doing his lines there for that. It is crappy. They were going to make the movie with Frank Sinatra, by the way. He would have been good, too. He would have been good. 
Uh, I don't think he had done a lot of acting. Or well, actually, uh, from here to eternity had already come out. So he had won the Academy Award from, from here to eternity. Uh, I think the previous year. Uh, but he was from Hoboken. So certainly he would know that world. Okay. Uh, but, but Kazan really wanted Brando. And at one point, uh, in one of his acting classes, or I don't know exactly how this happened, but, uh, Carl Malden directed a scene between Terry and Edie because the script, uh, Bud Schulberg's script was already out that, that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward did. Weird. Uh, and I think the, the implication is that Brando got so jealous that Newman might make the movie instead or that Sinatra might make the movie that he finally consented and agree to do it. Good move, Brando. <laughs> uh, and so Terry has this whole secret, which is he's responsible for her brother's death and Edie doesn't know that. So finally he gets to the place where his conscience is eating at him and he finally has to confess to her uh, who he really is and what his role in Joey's death was. And I think it's really cool how they stage this, which is he's telling her down at the docks and just as he's delivering the noise – uh, a foghorn from one of the ships comes on and their dialogue is, is entirely drowned out. So you don't actually hear the scene. You just see the actor's faces and you see her reaction and then she runs away. Uh, though Carla's quote was, this sequence could be better. <laughs> <laughs> that was melodramatic, I thought. It is a little melodramatic. I like the idea yeah. of not showing us or not not letting us hear him tell it to her. But yeah. the way that the camera like zoomed out and how she freaked out just felt it felt uh different from anything else in the film in a way that was I thought strange. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I like it. I think but it is one of the more stylized moments in the movie uh which is fairly grounded for the most part. And I felt like the back half like there's another half hour after they could have been contender speech. And I feel like there's less story to cover in that last half hour or so. It felt like yeah, it starts I to sleep in that last half hour. <laughs> it does start to drag a bit. I mean, the ending is pretty great of him getting beaten up and then, uh, his bloody face being dragged into the dock to work. Uh, as the guy says, let's go to work and the music swells and all of the dock workers finally go in as, as Johnny friendly is like, come on, you guys work for me. So, but it, it is kind of a, a melodramatic ending, which maybe, uh, betrays the tone of the, the first half. I don't a little remember bit. how it ends now that you said that he goes back to work for him. Yeah, no, no. He, well, he goes to work on the docks, but they've like, they finally defeated the mob influence. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, like n nobody's going to listen to Johnny Friendly anymore is Got kind it, of the right. uh, okay. the t the tone of it. Yeah, I think I think you were nodding asleep uh during the the climactic part. Um do have a can couple I, more can I say something? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the most interesting relationship was between the two brothers in the movie and yeah. that that to me could have been explored more um as opposed to focusing so much on the romance between him and the woman. Uh, but I, I also, I love the idea that she was there to find out who killed her brother. 
like all of that worked, but then it just kind of, and I, I understand that they needed him to fall in love with her in order for him to rat on everyone. Yeah. But I don't know. It just felt, cause his, the real, the real love story was between him and his brother. That's why that scene in the car is so famous. Yeah. Uh, that's something they talked about in that documentary. You know, when, uh, Charlie pulls out the gun, he's kind of like half, half acidly pointing at him. Like, you know, he's not really going to kill Terry and Brando kind of laughs and pushes the gun away and yeah. in, in disbelief. Um, but yeah, there, there aren't really a lot of scenes between Charlie and Terry early on to really strengthen that relationship. It's just the, how good the actors are that you believe the, the depth of it. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Uh, Charlie's supposed to be the older brother, but Steiger was a year younger than uh, Brando. He doesn't look it. <laughs> <laughs> he looks older? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Brando definitely very kind of handsome and, and manly and uh, and Steiger already going bald <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Brando, like, uh, Brando really is very handsome, was very handsome. And then... Things just like fell apart in a really spectacular way. <laughs> a lot like Orson Welles, where it's just like, wow, yeah. that man is, uh, that sounds shallow to say, but whatever. I'm going to say it anyways, because I want to, which is that they just kind of, yeah, they hit a certain age and all the drinking or whatever it was that they were doing caught up with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, combination of just good looks and charisma and talent, mm-hmm. uh, like both, both of those guys kind of had it. Uh, but yeah, I, I think then you buy into that hype. You start kind of living that life. You know, there, there's probably some abuse and, you know, uh, substance abuse and mental illness that goes along mm-hmm. with that. I mean, it, but what I also respect about them, and I have very limited knowledge of both of these men, so maybe I'm totally mistaken, but it didn't seem like they ever really cared that they got sloppy. <laughs> no. They didn't, they didn't give a shit. <laughs> I mean. It's kind of great that they were just like, fuck it, whatever. Maybe they, yeah. weren't, maybe they weren't even aware of how they looked anymore, which is kind of like good for them, except that perhaps that was an indication of them falling apart as human beings too. I think they were aware, but didn't care so much what other people thought of them. And remember like in touch of evil, that most of that is makeup and and padding, you know, that he was wearing, but he definitely became that fat later, you know, and was kind of unapologetic about it. It's interesting that definitely like at the time I was first watching this movie, it was taken as gospel that Marlon Brando is the best actor in the history of film. But really, when you think about it, his reputation is pretty much based on this streetcar and later the Godfather. Right. Uh, he won the Academy, his first Academy award for this movie. And it was his fourth straight nomination. Remember he did not win for streetcar. Okay. I remember. Remember, please remember that. Uh, he was then nominated for Viva Zapata and uh julius caesar but how many people are talking about viva zapata or julius caesar these days julius caesar he plays mark antony so he does the whole that that speech i had to see that in high school he does the speech that uh that robin williams parodies in dead poet society which is friends realm's countrymen yeah uh lend me your ears you know um 
He was nominated for Sayonara in 1957. I've never seen Sayonara. And then he, in the 60s, made a lot of bad movies, made a lot of self-indulgent movies. There's there's not a lot of his work from the 60s that's that iconic. And then he had this huge comeback with The Godfather and Last Tango in Paris. And uh, I can tell you that Last Tango in Paris does not hold up and is even more problematic in uh, present day. But, it, I mean, it was pretty controversial in its uh, in its time. And it's... I think a pretty repulsive movie. I've um, never seen it. Uh, and then he had kind of like his cameo phase in Superman and oh, yeah. Apocalypse Now. That's how I knew wh- him. Was from Superman. Where, where he got famous for doing these, you know, 10 minute parts that he got paid $20 million or, or whatever. And then he took another long hiatus. Uh, he was nominated again for. It was a movie where he played a South African judge and he was doing a South African accent. Really? Uh, yeah, in like 1989, I think. He was also in Taiwan um, DeMarco, wasn't he? That's right. I've never seen that. Have you Depp. seen that? Nope. I should have. A dry, a dry white season was the, uh, the legal movie that I'm thinking of. Uh, and then he did The Freshman, which I think he's pretty great in, where he parodies, uh, his godfather role. I never saw that either. Never saw The Freshman. It's really good. It's him and Matthew Broderick. I know who's in it. Matthew Broderick. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but uh, well, then let's, for- let's strip him of his title. <laughs> Officially. He is no longer the best actor of all time, but maybe has given one of the best performances. Yeah, it's... I, I think it's interesting because he did change film acting. He was the person who brought in the era of method acting and you never saw somebody who was that naturalistic and that unpredictable. And he had kind of a danger and a sexuality to him that totally changed movies. But I think ultimately his actual filmography does not hold up to the legend. Right. Who would you say the greatest film actor of all time is? Oh my God. I have no I idea. Mean, Meryl Streep. I mean, regardless of gender, it's Meryl Streep. Yeah, I mean, definitely. at this point, when you just look at the variety of performances, but then there's an argument for other people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, mean, even even if you're thinking way old school, you know, uh, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, and Humphrey Bogart each have at least... 10 roles or 10 movies that you could think of as like their iconic. But then you, you know. have to define what actor means because Humphrey Bogart to me is charismatic and believable, but he doesn't have any range in my opinion. Yeah. So yeah. are we, is, is actor defined as believably, uh, <laughs> believably, um, portraying life moments or is actor defined as, uh, you know, can play a variety of of people from play, different places. You know, it just depends. Yeah. So what is it? And then I'll give you an answer. <laughs> I think range is a huge part of it. Yeah, so I, I think Street. those. I mean, then there's no, uh, there's no argument. Who else has more range than Meryl Streep? Maybe Kate Blanchett. Well, I think. When you're in the 80s, then you're probably talking about De Niro, Pacino, Nicholson, and Hoffman 
and Hackman being like the generation that kind of, oh, maybe these are the guys that are going to supplant Brando as but the best. Tiro but then didn't it doesn't have a lot of range, right? I mean, I guess it's arguable. Yeah, I think it's arguable, but I think at some point he just settled into playing the De Niro role and didn't push himself as much. Or maybe he just but, likes to work. Yeah. I mean, because um, it's kind of impressive how he's still working the amount of films that he still makes. For range, I'd probably go Dustin Hoffman, uh, mm-hmm. but but he's kind of mannered. Yeah. I mean, Meryl Streep you know, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Jack Nicholson would probably be up there, but uh, but I think he also kind of settled into his crazy Jack period where he was kind of doing variations on the same thing. I mean, I I think about Schmidt. I love that movie. Yeah. I mean, later movie for him. And he was totally different in that film. I think he always does have that range that will surprise you. I think. I mean, I think, I think the answer though probably is, will break your heart, which uh, I know the guy who is your favorite. It's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. <laughs> I can't talk about it. <laughs> okay. We'll move on. But I think it, it'll be interesting if like 20 years from now, if people are still saying that Brando was the greatest film actor of all time. I don't think so. The thing with Philip I'd- Seymour Hoffman, and this is what's so heartbreaking about it, and I will probably start crying is that. He didn't, he was never in that movie that, that had such a huge cultural effect. Yes. Like if you look at his movies from performance to performance, he was so different in in his range and and variations of type of people that he was playing. But I can't really name a movie that across the board was like an incredible film. Well, the, the ones that he, that do have a big cultural impact. He had supporting roles in so big, big Lebowski and boogie nights come to mind. Uh, but the ones where he was carrying the movie were usually smaller. I mean, Capote, he won his Oscar for, uh, and it's a very good movie that he gave a great performance in, but it's, it's, it's almost gimmicky by his standards because he was doing such a mannered voice Mm -hmm. and, and everything. And I, I think he gave, better performances in another 10 movies compared to Capote, though, though I have no complaints about Capote. One of my favorite performances of his is in Magnolia. Yeah. But he makes and, me cry every time I see that movie. <laughs> and apparently Paul Thomas Anderson wrote that specifically for Phil Hoffman to be somebody very close to who he was, which was somebody very caring and empathetic. I know. I saw the documentary about it. <laughs> okay uh let's do just a couple more carlos quotes and then we can yeah we gotta wrap this puppy up i got shit to do today you guys okay um i can't be talking about philip seymour hoffman it's gonna just wreck my weekend (laughs) after the famous uh could have been a contender scene carlos said charlie gonna get dead Because Rod Steiger is supposed to either convince Terry to change his mind or kill him in that moment, and he does neither. So Charlie, uh, Carla said, Charlie going to get dead. <laughs> Weird. I don't remember saying it, but it made me laugh. Then there's the classic trope of Terry like breaking down her door and forcibly kissing her. That's another kind of like oh, uh, yeah. an- I forgot about anti- that part. 
antiquated trope, yeah, right? Which is like women love to be abused into kissing people. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think there's there's a time where of like uh, where women were almost uh, brainwashed into thinking of like, oh, that's the most romantic thing that could happen—a man breaking down a door for me, right? You know, where it's it's scary, right? Yeah, I mean, um, it's one thing like in Streetcar with Stella, she's an abuse in an abusive relationship with him, so we understand that she's in this cycle of abuse or whatever. But with this one, yeah. that's supposed to be the big romantic scene is Brando, right? <laughs> uh, kicking down the door. And yeah. she's telling, screaming at him to leave. It's just, yeah. As it staged in 1954, I don't think you're supposed to have mixed feelings about it. No. Right? No. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to think it's yeah. romantic. Yeah. Um, and during that scene when, when they're making out, Carla said, I hope her dad doesn't walk in. Because <laughs> <laughs> she lives with her dad, yeah. right? And then on Brando, uh, she, uh, you said his hands are dirty. Uh, oh yeah, he, he has really dirty hands in this movie, which he works on the docks. I get it. Makes sense. It's grounded. And then when they show uh, Charlie's body, uh, he's been killed by the mob. Carla said, "Who dat? Who dat? His brother? <laughs> you said who dat? His brother? <laughs> you don't have to repeat and, everything that I say." And then you said, "Now you both lost your brothers." <laughs> oh no. Uh. And then after he rats or after he becomes a stool pigeon, this kid who's been working with him in the pigeon coop kills all of his pigeons in retaliation. And Carla said, why'd you have to bring the birds into it? Mm-hmm. And then and then Edie comes up and he st- and they start, you know, kissing or touching each other, whatever. And I was so sure you were going to say, wash those dead pigeon germs off your hands first. And what did I say? You did not say anything. You were maybe falling asleep. You don't get to make up fake Carla's quotes. <laughs> you should have said, wash those dead pigeon germs off your hands first. Now, as you were falling asleep during this final thing, as he's getting beaten up, you you kept, I think, waking up and saying, whoops, did he die? Is he dead? What happened? Did he die? <laughs> so I, I think I think one eye was sleeping and the other eye was watching it. But no, Terry does not die. At the end of this movie, uh, he's very severely beaten up, but he defeats the mob boss, Johnny Friendly. Uh, Carla, you want to give On the Waterfront a letter grade? Well, I'm going to give it a B plus. Oh, that's pretty generous. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Why a B plus? What does that stand for? Um, it stands for, um, what does it stand for? Brotherly love. <laughs> uh I, I really did i think that i i like i liked that part of the movie uh, i was in the the stuff with the priest was really interesting i was definitely interested watching it so it kept my attention i thought it was well made sure there are a couple scenes that i was like whatever but overall i think this is a good film and it was better than i expected it to be i'm probably never going to remember it ultimately it's already starting to leave my brain, but while we're still within, the, you know, a few weeks of having watched it, I can say good, good movie. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I think number twenty nine feels a little high for this movie to me because I think there are elements that hold up well, uh, 
I mean, it's it's such an iconic movie, and that scene is so famous and justifiably so. And Brando is just really like exciting and different in this. And you know, if you've never seen this particular performance and you're wondering what all the Brando hype is about, it's it's from this movie, yeah. basically. This and Streetcar. Uh, though rewatching this after having seen Streetcar not that long ago, I feel like I prefer Streetcar. What? I don't. I think I liked this one better. Uh, I I feel like the tone and the world of Streetcar is more consistent to me. I think they're very they're very neck and neck. Uh, that movie just worked for me slightly better. So I'm gonna move on the waterfront way down into the 70s. What? <laughs> Holy crap, that's like a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the melodramatic aspects of it did not work as well for me. I, I feel like the last half hour drags a bit in winding down the story. Um, but uh, I'm going to keep it on the list. Uh, I still like it a lot. Uh, right now I have it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good movie. It should stay on your list for sure. I have it behind Streetcar. I have it behind Taxi Driver. I have it behind Wings of Desire. Okay. So that's that's where I'm putting it. I liked it better than Wings of Desire. I know you do. <laughs> you liked a lot of things better than that. Uh, you want to improvise a scene? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we improvise our version of the uh, the 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 glove scene between Terry and Edie? Great. All right. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> so so I could be doing it verbatim and it would make no difference to you. Yeah, like when you were talking about it earlier, I was pretending like I remembered what you were talking oh, about. Oh, dear God. <laughs> that was a really great meeting. Yeah, I... That was... Oh, sorry. Uh, the father said it's some interesting things. Yeah, I am... Um, I really appreciate the father's leadership role he's taking in this whole situation yeah i don't know about this church stuff you know i don't so pay a lot smart. of attention to it he's so smart and he just has so much faith i really i really well, why don't you marry him then admire him excuse me why don't you marry him then you like him so much i'm sorry i'm a i'm a roughneck guy yeah, you just I'm spit a, in my face i apologize for that when you say things that make you angry you spit I can't help it, all right? I come from the streets. I come from the boxing ring, all right? I don't think that that's an indication of being from the streets. You see my eyebrow, how fucked up it is? Yeah, it looks like you have three. Yeah, I get hit in the eyebrows so many times. You know you could fix that. How could you fix it? Uh, get like an eyebrow arch? Yeah, if you you can just, here, let me get, I have an eyebrow pencil. Hold on. Oh, really? Hold, hold this. This is hold. I have some gum in here. Hold, you, hold this. Hold Hold on. Oh, wait. Hold your purse. Yeah, hold this too. Um, this uh, I have extra stockings in my purse just in case. Oh, well, you wait, dropped your stocking. Right, I'm going to put your stocking over my head. Why would you do that? We're not. I don't know. I don't know. Just because I'm a. Just like, I'm an. I'm an impulsive, unpredictable guy. All right. I mean, I guess that's pretty sexy. Oh, excuse me. I just said the word sexy. That's a good. Yeah, you're not too funny today, fat man. Hey, I'm not that. I'm sorry. Fat. It's just some. You're not fat or a man. It's just something that I say, okay? I've been okay? living with nuns for the past 15 years, and they just, you know, they eat a lot of carbs. It's a lot of rice. Oh, nuns and carbs. Don't get me started. So, yeah, can you can you draw in that little missing eyebrow yeah, for me? Yeah, hold still. You're very sweaty. 
yeah, I, uh, it's a hot day. I sweat a lot. I'm sorry. I'm coarse. I'm from the streets. I'm from the docks. I don't, I, I don't know why you keep telling me you're from the streets. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying it until you believe me, oh, okay? I knew it. I know you. I grew up with you. How you know your brother who died? Yeah, I remember. It was just yesterday. <laughs> I don't know because we hadn't been talking about it at all, so I don't know if you remember well, I'm very it all. I'm upset about it. If I talk about it, then I'll start crying. I got to tell you something. Oh, God. That uh, the guy who asked him to go up on the roof, it was... <laughs> That's awful. Did you hear that? Yeah. Uh, well, almost. Sorry, I got a little drowned out by that foghorn. I mean, try again. Okay. The guy who told your brother to go up on the roof where they pushed him to his death, that guy was... That's awful. Wait, I still didn't hear you. I just... <laughs> I keep thinking you want me to say that that's awful because of the way that you're setting it up. It was... Goddamn foghorns. Was it you? Yeah, it was me. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it is awful. You want your stocking and your purse back? Yes, please. Okay. You're never going to draw on my eyebrow now, are you? I don't think you're good enough for my eyebrow pencil. Oh, hush. Hush? Harsh. You hush. You hush. You hush. Fine. Go live with the nuns then. I'm going to beat down a door. I'm going to beat down a door and kiss you forcibly. Okay. And you're going to like it. I have boundaries. And one of them is this door that I'm shutting in your face right now. Where'd you find that door? (laughs) (laughs) You carry that around in your purse? (laughs) And, oh, wait. No, that's it. And... Nope, we're doing a Tarzan yell now, remember? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh my god, this is going on for so long. We have to end. You said <laughs> You said we're not allowed to say and scene anymore. Oh, right. And, and I asked you what sound effect you wanted to use and you said a Tarzan yell. Oh, so that's we right. Did you not listen to the Avoiles and Fun episode? I don't listen to any of our episodes. <laughs> okay, so next week we're going to do a Carla's list. And what's it going to be? Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> Problematic Beetlejuice. <laughs> Let's expose Carla for the hypocrite she is. <laughs> stop saying, stop using that word. Craig's listeners, please tune in and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. The list is an absolute good. The list is life. <laughs>